the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. 602-508-0960 is the number. We have David Dahl, my producer here, just to the north of me. And uh, Terry, uh, Lady Terry, Miss Terry, just to the septent of him. I was thinking about something Adam Carolla was discussing the other day, and as we've discussed here from time to time, with the explosion of access to information and technology, more and more understanding was to come. In other words, we were all supposed to get better and be better. However, one wanted to quantify it. More peaceful, less divisive, more understanding, more kind, you name it. Didn't work out that way, did it? Is it something buried in our human nature and the quest for tribalism over enlightenment? The need to be right under the coddle of justified prejudices? The power of ideology or something else? We'll return to that in a moment. I was reading an interesting poll and story at Issues and Insights about a year ago. And the poll was about how divided Americans are and truthfully have been for years. I've generally ignored these kinds of polls over our division for two reasons. One, I never thought it was that big of a deal. James Madison predicted it. It's why we have two parties in America. And I've always thought with Irving Crystal that the first rule of politics is others won't always agree with you. The second reason was because I noted those who most lamented our divide were not conservatives. They tended to be liberals. And it always concerned me that their concept of being more united was not about amicability and respect for others' opinions, but rather a call to get everyone to one side, theirs. Never did a liberal who lamented the divide in America say, so maybe we should look a little more seriously at the conservatives' ideology and the conservative cause and platform and maybe consider joining them on some stuff. But really it is and was more. More like, how can people think that way? meaning conservative, and how do we get them to our side? The latter concern is what has come to us in full force now. The political left could not leave the cultural institutions alone. They could not leave politics at the schoolhouse gates, and they could not leave politics outside the churches and synagogues. Movies and television shows were once pro-America, not pro-American Democrat or pro-American Republican, just acknowledging here and there where the script took you there that America was the good guy. And her enemies, primarily throughout the Cold War, the USSR, were the bad guys. And those who fought in World War II on our side were the heroes. Most of our movies about war or spies or even half the love stories were like that. That all started to change roughly around when Reagan left office in the late 1980s and after the Berlin Wall was broken. At the universities and colleges, the precursors to wokeness and diversity, equity and inclusion, were planted with the seeds of the notion of consciousness raising and political correctness and phrases that seem so antiquated now, including the trifecta of lower consciousness, darkness, concerns of race, class and sex. 
which in those days meant sexism. The raising of the consciousness task back then was to ensure equal treatment for all and to root out prejudice. I always thought that the biggest social engines standing in the way of all that were race and gender quotas in the name of affirmative action, because silly me, I thought the quest for equality was to get beyond thinking of people as racial or sexual creatures, which is to say I always thought the best way to think of people was the exact opposite of the way people used to treat them, the greatest of inhumanities, that is, to think like good Marxists and good Nazis, that race or sex or gender or religion or ethnicity dictated thought. So I always thought the best way to get past race was to get past race, to stop using it. Stop using it as an indicator of belief as much as behavior. That to me was always Third Reich stuff. The notion that there are lower and higher forms of being based on genetic code. Or that rights flowed to one because of genetic code. And that brains mattered less than blood. Anyway, the quest had to perforce change because race and gender considerations and everything from employment to education became the indices of modernity, or at least elevated in enlightened thinking. Sometimes for self-satisfied altruism, sometimes for vengeance. And this helps explain why the word equality disappeared and the word equity replaced it. It turned justice into something whose aim was neutrality, into something much more like revenge. And instead of another badge of equality, speech and debate, free speech and debate, where everyone was entitled to a position of thought open to conversion as it was tempered in the fires of argument, especially on these very issues. Instead of all that, consensus was no longer the issue. Agreement and toleration based on reasonable discussion and conclusion, but rather presumed a priori outcomes as if the debate was settled and settled in one direction only. So traditional Professors or teachers or conservative professors or teachers or teachers with conservative leanings or inclinations were considered in the way. And then the leftovers were denounced as bigots or Neanderthals or worse. Scholars writing against the liberal left, the liberal left tide, whether black or white or something else, whether Clarence Thomas or Robert Bork, whether Shelby Steele or George Will, whether Thomas Sowell or Milton Friedman, whether Larry Elder or Dennis Prager, they all had to go. And the way had to be cleared of them. The way to do that was to marginalize and stigmatize them. Think of, th I, I, I think the first time I heard the phrase politically incorrect, in fact, was in the late 1980s and used against Shelby Steele. But as Peggy Noonan once put it, conservatives knew a few things that the culture of politics kept trying to prove otherwise. They knew they weren't dumb and they knew they weren't Neanderthals. But do consider an interesting corollary. If thinkers considered conservative were basing their works on the best traditions of America and the best statements and writings of the founders or Enlightenment or the West, then, of course, those traditions and those statements and those writings and that thinking had to be attacked, denounced, or marginalized. The wholesale had to be disturbed so as to get rid of the retail. There had to be a disturbance in the marketplace of ideas. In other words, try it this way. A, let's say scholar, has an interesting position. It's based on B, let's say a foundational document, writing, or piece of philosophy. But we disagree with what A is saying, so we must illegitimize him. 
But when A points to B as his source, as his justification, as a defendant may point to a law to justify his actions, it is B, the foundational source, the law that must be attacked. Which is but one way you get a changed date for our founding from 1776 to 16. 19. And pretty soon, the ethic of the open mind, the ethos of consent of the governed coming from the tempering of ideas and arguments based on models of the open society and open debate was curtailed and curtailed and curtailed. So when I refer to Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural, I often quote the line, every difference of opinion of principle we have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. When I quote that, I tend to get Blake stairs. I get blank stares because we haven't thought about those distinctions for a long time, and we haven't thought about those distinctions for a long time because we no longer debate opinions. The left marginalized and solidified what was supposed to be the consensus on major themes, and we now very much do debate only principles. Oh, and one other thing. We've been taught that Jefferson, the B, is to be ignored. We are divided, it seems to me, because the left very nearly has won or won over elite and respectable political and cultural opinion on issues that used to be freely and fairly debated. The left's notion of unity or unification or lack of division thus came to mean acceptance or enforcement of their point of view, not ease and calm over politics and policies changing here and there based on debatable propositions. To the left, there are no more debatable propositions. That's their version of the Hegelian notion of the end of history, the notion that world history is progressive and leads to ever-evolving standards of advancement culminating in something like a utopia or at least an achievement of ultimate reality where issues don't need to be discussed or debated anymore. They've been solved. But the problem is inherent that humans do not work that way not sentient or as sentient-thinking rational beings. Abraham Lincoln put it well when he put it this way, repeal the Missouri Compromise, repeal all compromises, repeal the Declaration of Independence, repeal all past history. You still cannot repeal human nature. We'll say some more on this when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show talking a little bit here about, uh, it was opening up a little bit about divisiveness and divisions in America and the notion that though Hegelian and the left thinks there is a fixed outcome and their idea of ending division is all joining their side rather than letting the ordinary understanding of factions and politics operate the way the founders understood human nature and the way human nature is to be understood, that you can't repeal it, as Abraham Lincoln said. It's still true that the regular means of politics would prove insufficient to the authoritarian or totalitarian institution or certitude of absolute rightness that exists on the left. You'll recall Judge Learned Hand's statement that the spirit of liberty was the spirit that was not too sure that it was right. Thus, open societies would always nurture freedom of conscience and freedom of thought or debate and speech. Today's left has no such antagonizing or agonizing certitudes. Their certitudes are their certainty. And debate and questioning only gets in the way. 
So uniting the country was soon not to become about respecting one another and one another's opinions and differences, no matter what Joe Biden said, with the satisfaction that we all were Americans and mean for the best for each other with different ways of getting there, but rather getting everyone to believe the same thing. Thus, he would go from being a uniter to calling the opposite party the party of Jefferson Davis. One might say it was enforced unification of consent rather than consent arrived at by choices of the governed and the satisfaction that those choices and consent would change from time to time, as in the old phrase you don't hear anymore, an emerging consensus. In January 2021, as I was mentioning, Joe Biden delivered in his inaugural speech the phrase unity twice using it and then saying he wanted to bring America together. Quote, uniting our people and uniting our nation, I ask every American to join me in this cause, uniting to fight the common foes we face, anger, resentment, hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, hopelessness. Two years prior in November, Joe Biden pledged, quote, I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide but to unify, who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States, close quote. A year later, Joe Biden was screaming that Republicans are the party not just of Jefferson Davis, but also Bull Connor and George Wallace. Half a year after that, he was saying Republicans were the party of semi-fascists, and his DNC chairman was saying the Republican Party was a party of fear and fascism. Katie Hobbs, our governor here, I remind, called ours the party of white nationalists. Parents wanted a say in their child's school curriculum as taxpayers supporting the schools, as parents caring about their children, and it ran against the grain of enforced pedagogy and culture. The FBI would have no problem intimidating those parents in the name of preserving the state as well as the state of thinking because unity or unification meant we all had to have the same view, and that view being the progressive left-wing one. Besides which, the cultural institution of the school is how we create generational reinforcement of right think, isn't it? Same for opposition to sexualized texts and books. Same for the opposition to show who really is in charge and in control during COVID. No dissent would be tolerated or brooked. We would never call it totalitarianism. We would call it pro-science and our opposition anti-science or science deniers. So much the better to show anti-intellectualism and lower forms of thinking, not with it if you will, not sophisticated, not enlightened, not a raised or higher consciousness. But whatever euphemism you want to attach it, it's all the same thing. It's still the totalitarianist instinct, impulse, and disposition. How else does one get away with saying the things Joe Biden and other Democrats say, either about only one party denying the election results as legitimate or illegitimate, or pasting labels of the dregs of the Democratic Party's past, like Davis and Connor and Wallace and Jim Crow, onto Republicans? Either Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have a different dictionary than we all do, or see things through lenses that refract their images as opposites, upside down and inside out, or he simply cannot be believed or trusted. If he told you it was raining, you would want to look outside to independently verify that, wouldn't you? If he speaks of his virtues at your dining room table, to borrow from Emerson, you will want to count the spoons before he leaves. 
So these polls on unity and being united or disunited leave me a bit cold and fearful, especially as the unifying force found in the best of our history and founding has been blown out. For example, follow me here. If you want to know why it's not racist to invoke Martin Luther King Jr.'s notion of colorblindness and getting beyond race in order to get beyond race, and why Ibrahim Kingdi's position that we must racially discriminate to get beyond discrimination is the new convention, it is this. If you read any civil rights speech or sermon of King's, it's all based on two things, theology and America's founding documents. In other words, King and his ethic was to unite all Americans toward his cause by something we could all unify around, our country and our shared faiths. King was the A from my earlier description. The American historical record and Judeo-Christian ethos were the B. Well, the B has been smashed. The founding is no good. 1776, freedom equality is out. 1619, slavery misery is in. The goodness of America was curd converted into the evilness of it. If you want to know why we are divided more than ever, that's why. The tablets have been smashed. And if you want to know why so many leading Democrats, from Kamala Harris to Hillary Clinton to Nancy Pelosi to Joe Biden to Jim Carville, say that if you vote for Republicans, you are threatening or voting to threaten democracy, this is why. This is exactly why. Their version of a united or uniting America is to coerce, it is to party purge, and it is to manufacture complete consent. It will do it any way it knows how, including using the Department of Justice. The definition of all that used to have a name. There was a word that used to be used to describe and define all that. That name, that word, illiberal. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960 is the number. David, you, uh, <laughs> you've been kind of taunting the audience with Having them guess as to what you're dressed for is hall- for Halloween. But it's a radio show, Seth. They can't see me. I know, but I can describe it. You can describe you? Oh, and we'll get them to like, call in and guess or something? No, <laughs> I just, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, you're so innocent. Yeah. And you come in looking like Frank Sinatra. With a houndstooth jacket and I heard, tie. Uh, <laughs> I heard Fred Rogers earlier as well. <laughs> yeah, or Fred Rogers, and you have a red sweater over your white shirt and finely pressed pants with some kind of English boot going on. <laughs> and, and you're asking us to guess who you are. And it could be anyone from, as I say, Frank Sinatra. You, you, could, even be, you could even be James Bond. I heard that one in the office as well. Sean yes. Connery's James Bond, like in um, Goldfinger, I think. Perhaps. Yeah, you, I don't think I caught him wearing a sweater in that movie. Maybe, Except on the golf course, I believe he did. Yeah, yeah, maybe on the golf course. But none of that was correct. No, I was really hoping you would recognize the conservative film icon that I was dressed up as today. Well, I think Frank Sinatra could be considered a conservative icon. Yeah, I mean... Fred uh, Rogers was not a liberal. No, certainly not. Uh, 
who James else? Bond's probably on our side in spirit. Yeah, probably on it. He hated communists. Of course. Sure. So, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, buddy. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, yeah, it just, we all got it wrong, maybe for a reason. Maybe uh-huh. no one got it right. Maybe that's an indicator. You want to tell everyone what you were doing, going for? Well, should I should I let you guess? No, they're not going to get it. We couldn't get it looking at you. How are they going to get it not looking at you? Uh, I'll, I'll I'll say this. Do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah. Well, do you? Yeah. Yeah. He was going for Harry Callahan. Yeah, dirty so Harry. He was going for Dirty Harry. Yeah. Had a red sweater vest. It, yeah. And just you don't gray trousers yeah. and boots, of course. Yeah. If I paraded around with a forty-four Magnum, would that have given me away? Yeah. That would have. You needed that. That would not, have given me to the yeah, cops. <laughs> I, yeah. I, something about the forty-four Magnum is a little bit more emblematic of Harry Callahan than a red sweater vest. Well, we can't let you do that. I know they're not Smith allowing it, but and Wesson no, I, and well, me. I, I know. Okay, <laughs> but you agree with me? The forty-four would be more emblematic than a red sweater. Certainly. Okay. If I did that, I wouldn't have been here today. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. We don't allow it in the office. We only allow lesser caliber guns. <laughs> yes. Not yes. the most powerful. Only those of us that tote around RPKs. Yeah, I know, right? We, did you ever post that picture of me with the RPK? I haven't. I was kind of hoping you would, yeah. No, I'd rather you do it. <laughs> I do it. Yeah, I'd rather you do it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Speaking of characters in Hollywood, you know, something we didn't discuss, and maybe we don't need to discuss, but if you're of a certain age, it was really quite amazing over the weekend and into yesterday how big a story... Uh, the death of Matthew Perry was. Does that require any discussion on our part? It may not. There was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, though, that was kind of interesting in showing how he typified the general, uh, the, Gen, the Gen X sensibility as Chandler Bing. Um, and it's kind of interesting as a cultural moment, um, but probably not much more to say. I saw a lot of idiots on cable with credentials speculating as to how and why he died. We don't know. And it, the speculation does no one any good. I, I, You know, they said, well, it could have been this and it could have been that and it could have been this and it could have been that. And then they always throw in the, you know, the problems with obviously the history of addiction, and alcohol and all that. Um, but why speculate? I mean, I just, I, you know, why speculate? We'll wait and we'll know in time. We do know by his own words, of course, that he had a long, long struggle with addiction and recovery and uh, did his best to overcome it. And um, that that kind of addiction, the addiction to those kinds of things, opioids and alcohol, can do a number and age you and your organs, of course, not to mention the messing with your brain, even after sobriety. We do know that much. But that, you know, that's one sentence. It's not panels of experts guessing. Anyway, um, I just thought it was worth bringing it up in case anyone else wanted to. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602-508-0960 is the number. Um, do we post a picture of you on Twitter? Are we going to do that on Twix? Me? Yeah. I so, don't have any pictures of myself. 
Well, you can take pictures of me all I, you want. If I send if it to I you, if I post a picture of you, you post a picture of me. How's that sound? No, how about not that? How about if I send you a picture of you, you post it, uh, so people can see what we're talking about. But that's two IOU. Yeah. What? Yeah, the picture of I me. I post a picture of you. Yeah, you can and post a picture okay. of myself. All right, that's a deal. We just got a deal. You can post the picture of me holding the RPK, and um, you post a picture of you, looking like this is Fred Seth Rogers Callahan in 1974. <laughs> a really important book was released today, and I can't wait to get my hands on it. Written by a um, a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution, the author is. I, I hope I'm saying the name. Right, G. Van Fleet. She spells her name, first name is X-I. I think it's G. Van, V-A-N, Fleet, F-L-E-E-T. Old buddy of mine turned me on to her some couple of years ago, I think it was. And um, what's so fascinating about her work and what she's written up until now, and I suppose in the book that is released today called Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning, Mao's America, Survivor's Warning. What's so interesting about what she is showing is that while everyone here probably, at least in earshot, appreciates we're going through something here in this country, something big and momentous, something different, something monumental, maybe lasting, maybe not, but something big is changing in this country. One might call it a cultural revolution. One might call it a cultural political revolution. And to the degree one recognizes it, um, one might ask where it's coming from, where the uh, flatus is. And I think Z. Van Fleet has a pretty good warning on it. Mao's America, a survivor's warning. Can I read just a little from her introduction? The year 2020 was a watershed moment in American history. The outbreak of a pandemic brought ashore to us from the Chinese Communist Party and the death of George Floyd a perfect storm. The storm delivered a heavy blow to America, a blow so severe that America now appears to have been possibly changed forever. Suddenly, many Americans focused on working hard, raising their families, and minding their own business awakened to the realization that they hardly recognized their own country anymore. Overnight, it seemed new realities were being forced upon them, challenging everything they believed to be true. From the progressives came the demand that one must comply with their cause to remake America by denouncing all its institutions, all its traditional values, and its very foundation. To do otherwise incurs being ostracized and demonized on social media and schools and workplaces and even within families. To do otherwise, one is now simply labeled a racist. To do otherwise, one may lose their livelihood. Many awoke only to find that they had become oppressors for being born white. Others found that they must now consider themselves hopelessly oppressed and incapable simply because they were born non-white. Many are bewildered that reality and a common sense no longer mean anything. During the riots in the summer of 2020, viewers were told they were watching mostly peaceful protests while buildings burned in the background. All of a sudden, no one is sure how to define a woman, and everyone must now believe men can have babies. Parents were dumbfounded to see firsthand through Zoom classes what their children were being taught in public schools. 
one of those things being that America is an irredeemably racist country. During the pandemic, average Americans found themselves less and less free to make choices for themselves and for their families. The government at every level now, from the school board to federal authorities, demands submission to tyrannical orders that often appear nonsensical and politically charged. Parents who speak out at school board meetings can now be labeled as domestic terrorists by the U.S. Department of Justice. Americans are now told to accept a new reality where the police have become villains and criminals have become victims who are allowed to roam freely in our cities and communities, terrorizing the citizens. Hardworking, tax-paying Americans have found themselves strangers in their own country. What is happening? Why? For what purpose? Z. Van Fleet writes... I've seen all this before. Like most Americans, I also felt like I was hit by a storm. Unlike most Americans, this storm hit me once before, more than 50 years ago when I was only seven years old, just starting school in China. The storm was the great proletarian cultural revolution launched by Mao Zedong, the communist dictator who ruled over China from 1949 to 1976, and it lasted 10 years, covering most of my school years. In my memory, it also appeared to happen overnight, just like it did here in America in 2020. Overnight, we were told the country we lived in was rotten to the core and needed to be dismantled. Instead of looking for racists, we were ordered to look for counter-revolutionaries. Just like the term racist now has an ever-changing fluid definition, such was the term counter-revolutionary. The term was applied to anyone Mao did not like, anyone who thought Mao would not like, anyone who dared to question, and anyone who was not enthusiastically participating in the Cultural Revolution. Everyone frantically joined the ranks of the revolutionaries. To be left out meant ending up an enemy of Mao. People turned against each other in search of enemies and in defense of Mao. Friends turned against friends, neighbors against neighbors, co-workers against co-workers, and family members turned against each other. As children, we were taught to report on family members, including our parents. Cancel culture ensued, and on its path, anything that was not pure Maoist, including our heritage, was literally destroyed. Statues were toppled by mobs. Books and art were burned. In the course of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, artifacts, symbols, traditions, and customs of 3,000 years of Chinese civilization were removed from our daily lives. By the death of Mao in 1976, up to 20 million lives were lost in China as we once knew it was burned to the ground by the flames of the revolution. Back to 2020 in America again, this star- storm not only shocked me, but also enraged me. But instead of crying on the couch, I took action. I did so because I knew full well how America, my beloved adopted country, could also be burned to the ground like China if we didn't stop it. Rage and a burning desire for action made me abandon the Chinese wisdom that my parents and Chinese culture have drilled into me. The bird who sticks its head out first gets shot. I decided to stick my head out and take the shot. America has been my home for over three decades, where I've been afforded the freedom and prosperity fought for and defended by generations of Americans. Now it's my turn. For the first time, I took the giant step and joined the fight in defense of our children and in defense of America. I went to school board meetings with hundreds of concerned parents in my hometown in Loudoun County, Virginia, to deliver a one-minute comment. In those 60 seconds, I drew the parallel between critical race theory and the Chinese Cultural Revolution and warned the audience that CRT is Marxism. I'll give you a little more from Xi Van Fleet. 
when we come back. Her new book, Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. They are good friends. They're good people. They have a great investment. It's um, in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a uh, portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. And no loss of principal, no penalty if you need your money back at any time. You're paid monthly, your interest is compounded daily, and there are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm. You can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. Invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24, 888-YREFI-24. Just a little bit more from Z. Van Fleet's book, Mao's America, Survivor's Warning, just out today. She realized, I realize most Americans don't know much, if anything, about, at all about the Chinese Cultural Revolution, Communist China, Communism, or Cultural Marxism in general. That explains why so few have recognized that the root of today's woke revolution, not to mention its ultimate goal, is Marxism. So many people have encouraged me to write a book. And in this book, I tell the tale of two cultural revolutions, one driven by Mao and the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, one that is unfolding in America today, using personal experience, extensive historic research. Both revolutions use Marxist tax, tactics of division, indoctrination, deception, coercion, cancellation, subversion, and violence. Both revolutions aim to destroy the foundation of traditional culture to replace it with Marxist ideologies. Both revolutions weaponize youth, using them as their means to an end. Both revolutions share the same goal of achieving absolute power at the expense of the people. Both revolutions lead to the same ending, loss of freedom and totalitarian rule. Mao's America, A Survivor's Warning by Z. Van Fleet, X.I. Van Fleet. I had been tracking some of this in 2020, and I was noticing in a couple of people familiar with the Cultural Revolution and its history we're also attending to the comparisons. In Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution, the task was to get rid of the four olds, the four old things, old ideas, old culture, old customs, old habits. And um, I think we see the same thing today, the very same thing today. It's to be warned about. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.